This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Charles Marin. Charles, hello. Hi, Ariel. How are you? Happy New Year and Happy New Year to everybody. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes. I, it's actually when you say that, it reminds me of years past when we used to go to SIHH, which was in late January at the time, and everyone used to say Happy New Year. And, you know, New Year had sort of already passed by a month at that point, but I realized I hadn't seen anyone. So I found it like, oh, yeah, yeah, New Year. But this is the first time we're speaking in 2022. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a hell of a ride um, over the last several years. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, just a little bit of background on you. I met Charles a number of years ago, probably the first time when you were working with HYT, which you're working with them again. And you are a very interesting type of person in the watch industry. You are an, an important gear in the ecosystem of the watch industry. You're an agent. And a lot of people don't really know what that means exactly. But the idea, in my opinion, is you're sort of like a diplomat. You sort of communicate between headquarters, often in Europe, and a market, and you specialize in the United States and Latin America and the Caribbean. Would you sort of agree that you are a liaison of sorts? Definitely. And um, it's true that agent is very different from a distributor who normally hold stock, and uh, sell his own merchandise. In the case of the agent, um, I'm promoting the brands that I represent, and it's the brand directly selling with our local partner. It's true that being an agent, you have to, in a way, fight for both sides, meaning the brand being treated, represented, and promoted the way it should be. And uh, on the other side, the retail partner being helped as much as possible, supported as much as possible. Sometimes, you know, when distributors consider that, okay, they sold their merchandise and the job is done. Being an agent sometimes goes, or most of the time goes much further than than just being the distributor. There's not a lot of industries that have agents such as yourself still. And the watch industry is really, really crucial. And I want to help people understand why your type of job even exists. So maybe you can express exactly sort of why you became interested in, in being an agent and then also describe what function that that job has. Like you said, you're distinct from a distributor. Um, you're distinct from a, a specific salesperson. I think it's very interesting that your type of role exists because, again, it's not common in a lot of other industries. So what background can you tell us about how you got into this as well as what this role really means to today's watch industry? So my background has absolutely nothing to do with watches. <laughs> I'm sorry. Typical for so many of us. <laughs> First of all, I'm a, I'm a French uh, citizen so you probably heard with the with the accent so when i i first started to work i was working for a french car company and i was uh, doing for them big events in fact organizing launch of new cars for their entire worldwide network so we're talking about events that could be one day with 50 people one day with 5000 or six weeks with 50,000 guests coming and going all the time. Lot, very complicated, lots of logistics, yes. Yes. lots of moving pieces. Exactly. And in these, I was in charge of all what was related to the car itself, the innovations, promoting them, and so on. So it was a very good learning school because you start with a huge company. It was uh, The company is called Renault, which is one of the number one manufacturer, car manufacturer in France and one of the, I would say, five big groups, car groups in the world. So not a small. In that, fact, of course, doesn't have any cars in, in the United States. In the U.S., but no. But <laughs> beside Ren the point. <laughs> Renault owns Nissan, to give you an idea. Yes, yes. We, so, we remember the scandal. I know, I know. And, and uh, anyway... So after some years, I was tired and a friend of mine was working for a watch distributor in Barbados and they were looking for somebody. And I said, you know what? I always loved watches. I don't know that much, but let me try. So 
They decided to give me a try. I thought it was going to be one or two years, and I spent almost 10 years in Barbados. Wait, hold doing... on. This is, this is one of the few times outside of maybe the rum industry where anyone's gotten a job from Barbados. Yes. Like, this is a rare situation, right? Like, oh, <laughs> yes. I started my new career through a job opportunity in Barbados. That just that doesn't enter conversation very often. <laughs> I know. And so that's what I'm saying. Instead of being two years in Barbados, I spent almost 10 years. But it was very interesting because it was beginning of the 2000. So it was when Audemars Piguet started to boom, Richard Mille started to boom. And at that time, we were representing Audemars Piguet, Richard Mille, Gérard Perego, Harry Winston, Gerald Genta, Daniel Now this Roth. is in Barbados. This is a store in Barbados? It's not a store. It was an agent who okay. was carrying this brand for the entire Caribbean and Latin America. So just that, again, just out of context and wanting to make sure that the audience understands, why would an agent for these super luxury watch brands be headquartered in Barbados of all places? So the history is that company was created before World War II. And over the years, their main a business originally was French Art de la Table. So brands like Christophe, Lalique, Baccarat, you know, a Porcelain, China, Crystal. But of course, with the years, people used less and less silver plates or silver cutlery when you, when you have a, a dinner. So the company started to evolve in other luxury items, such as watches. And they had the representation for Cartier's, for Tag Heuer, for many brands over the years. So I would say at that time, not that we were a leader necessarily in the region, but yes, we were not a, a small player in the region given the, the brand and the, the contacts we had. And uh, it was a very interesting experience because it was a small company, so it was very old school. After these 10 years, I got an opportunity to go work this time for a distributor based out of Miami, still doing uh, only Caribbean and Latin America. You, you got to explain the difference between a distributor and an agent because yeah. I get it, but I don't think most people know what the difference is. Yep. So the, the main difference is that the distributor own the stock of product that they sell. The agent does not own anything. The agent just represents the brands that they, they promote. So it's a big difference because when you own your stock, you can, in a way, sell a, not to who you want, but you have less restriction than it's when it's the brand directly as an uh, well, let's Let's discuss that point. Because I think that's important to explain why you wouldn't want to necessarily be a distributor. Because it seems like being a distributor is preferable. You get to own the inventory, you get to do whatever you want with it. Um, but when it comes to luxury things, you know, inventory is expensive, just like the retail price is expensive. So not everyone can afford to spend so much money on buying inventory. And therefore, this notion of agency, where you help represent and you sort of make a fee or a commission or something like that, evolved out of the fact that the inventory is so expensive. This is my guess, and I'm asking you to confirm or deny this. No, of course. Being a distributor, you need to have a lot of cash flow in order to be able to afford the inventory. If your cash flow is limited, you're not going to be a very efficient distributor because you'll only be able to have such amount of, of uh, product and not more. So that's why it's also it's uh, difficult and different. And the other and we're thing, talking millions and millions of dollars sometimes. We're, we're not talking about like, you know, oh, I spent $10,000 on inventory. No. $10,000 could get you one item or not even one item. Yes, yes. You're talking about millions per month in order to buy and sell. But at the same time, these brands, if they don't have a distributor, effectively have zero representation in a market and therefore aren't doing business there. So that is that is sort of why this notion of agency came about. And again, I'm trying to explain it because it just it doesn't really exist in too many other industries. No, it's exactly the case. In fact, what happened is uh, brands usually consider first the first markets, you know, the big ones, the easy ones. So Excuse me. So they can do it directly through their subsidiaries. 
And then after that, usually they give secondary and third market to distributors because the distributor obviously will pay for the product before it is sold to a store or to a final consumer. So for the brand, it's good because it's a financing that they get on a monthly basis. And then uh, when it comes to, let's say, third market, it's a little bit more complex. So if we take the case of the Americas, which is where I, I work for so many years. Which apparently is a third market now. Having distribution in Latin America and Caribbean is complex because you can't have your stock nowhere in these countries as they all have duties. So you have to have a specific logistic and structure that allow you to really reach each and every one of these markets helping your clients to you know achieve the goals and everything so distributor is a completely different structure and organization which if it's not done the right way at the end is going to be more damaging for the brand because your local partners will have the impression that they don't have the support that is needed to push and promote the products so that's why, as you were saying before, brands sometimes take the direction of the agency because they keep controlling the stock so they know that they know who's buying in a way. And also because it's easier to give the agency for one territory. When you're a distributor, you want a wider territory in order to, um, how can I say that, uh, absorb more of the expenses on the one. You want to you want to protect your investment. You're buying a lot of inventory. You want to have exclusivity in as large a region as possible. Yes, but it's also because you're gonna need to hire more people. You want to have yes the wider territory as possible, so your your staff is I would say well occupied rather than waiting for the only territory that you have. You know. So let's talk more about this notion of third market because you said that people like having agents in their, you know, the, the 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 newer markets, the optional ones, the ones that are like a nice plus but not the biggest thing. But you yourself and a couple of other people are agents in the United States for a large number of brands. Each of you represents, you know, maybe five brands or something like that, maybe less, maybe a little bit more, but around that, not too many. And that is how a lot of brands reach the United States, which is the world's largest luxury watch market. It is now, for a little while, it was number two behind China. It's back to being number one. So how do you reconcile the fact that um, this is not a secondary market, but a lot of brands outside of someone such as yourself really have no official presence here? No, United States is a number one market. Definitely, there is no doubt on that. I think, you know, when it comes to selecting why you have a distributor or why you have an agent, uh, questions are not the same. In the case of one of the brands that I currently represent, which is Laurent Ferrier, Laurent Ferrier um, had a distributor before me and um, they decided to stop working through a distributor because they wanted to have a more direct access or contact with their local partner. Why, why? Just out of curiosity, why? Like, not necessarily for them, but why would someone feel that they want more? I just think it helps offer some context. Because to, to, to change a distribution agreement or representation agreement, it's a lot of emotions. It's sometimes a combative experience. What would, what would make somebody feel that that's worth it? So in the case of Laurent Ferrier, which is a small brand producing about 250 timepieces a year, their need here was to be closer to the market. The United States is a very important market for Laurent Ferrier. And so being closer would allow them to understand better the market and to cater better to the needs of our collectors here. And with the distributor, they had the impression that that communication and that closeness was not there. So that's why they decided to make the switch from a distributor to an agent. For them, it's less interesting money-wise because they have to wait that the product is sold to the store to be paid. But it gives them more control on how to organize also their distribution or their visibility on the territory. 
while with the distributor, because he owns the product, yes, there are you know, a rules in the contract that says you have to represent well and so on and so on. But you can't have the same grip on a distributor as you may have on an agent, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so again, I, I'm hoping that this is interesting to people because it really represents how a lot of watches are sold and come to market, why some brands do better than others. Would you agree that none of these representation solutions are necessarily ideal? A brand having a subsidiary in the company has pluses and minuses. Having a distributor, having an agent, pluses and minuses. I think the larger picture that I'm trying to convey here is that entering a market and how you handle that market is so complicated and has so many pluses and minuses, it can really inhibit performance. And that it seems to me, and again, I'd like your opinion, that being able to figure out a stable business model in a market is a necessary prerequisite to having real success in that market. And I'd love your thoughts on that. So my philosophy is very easy, which is if our partner is happy, we are happy. So for me, a, a good relationship. The retailer, relation, you mean? Yes. Okay. For me, a good relation, whether it's a distribution or agency, it has to be a, a flat balance, meaning equal on both sides. Otherwise, it will never work well. And as you were asking before, brands will not get the good representation because of that unbalanced relation. So I think rather than you asking what's what's better between subsidiary or distribution or agency, I think at the end it's it's more a click between human beings. So it's people, it's yes. people, it's relationships. It's not about the business model. But aren't incentives crucial? And that again, I know I don't mean to be sort of splitting hairs here, but I've seen so many otherwise great people great watches in a great market just go completely south. And I always wonder myself, like, what happened here? Like everything seemed to be working out or alternatively, nothing's working out and you you feel like it should and you, and you sort of wonder why. So there's all these like, everything's working great or not working at all. You, you don't know how to compare and brands always want to copy each other, right? And I feel like oftentimes they copy the wrong things. They copy the design, they copy the name, they copy the marketing, but they don't actually know where the success comes from and don't really know what to copy. No, it's true. And that's why I think here what is important, you know, if you, everybody can make a mayonnaise because the ingredients, you can find them everywhere, but not all mayonnaise will taste the same depending on the quality of the I chef. see you're an expert on mayonnaise. And I'm, I hate mayonnaise. In fact, I don't <laughs> even eat it. <laughs> but it was the easiest for me to come up with. So all I'm trying to say is because that's a... Um, relationship is built and is growing and it goes well and so on and so on. That's how at the end, everybody gets excited and motivated to, I would say, go beyond their limits and say, you know what? Yes, the brand Laurent Ferrier or Charles Marin is supporting us, whatever it is. We're going to do the utmost to be able to give them the same support that they, they are giving it to us, you know? So as long as there is that... Um, human relation that is working, for me, the rest will work in any case. That's the impression I have. And that's what I felt for the past uh, 20 years. In fact, I have uh, friends today who were clients at the beginning who tells me, whatever you'll do, we'll always try with you because the way you do the work is the way we like to work. I want to comment on that because I think it's so important. Charles and some of the representatives like him in the United States have such a good relationship with their, their partners, their clients, what they call, these are essentially retailers, that the retailers say, we don't really care what watch it is, but we want to work with you. So if Charles decides to have an entirely different four or five set of brands, they'll just transition over to selling those four or five brands or whatever ones they like. What's important is that they have a working understanding with Charles and that oftentimes there's more loyalty than to the people than the actual products that are being sold. And that's a very interesting dynamic within the luxury space, especially in watches in, in, in this market. Well, I mean, it's the same between the collector and the retailer. The collector will go back to his retailer because he has also that special relation with him because the, right. the retailer keeps him aware of what's the new thing, keeps him aware of what he may receive and so on and so on. So because that relation works well, that's why he comes back. And 
I think many of my uh, colleagues uh, doing the same job are not necessarily always looking at it like that, unfortunately. Sometimes it's only numbers that they can look because of the pressure they may get from other people. And that's why sometimes they can't manage to make the relation. But I think uh, the human factor is the most important in the the luxury business. Now, a lot of brands would totally hope it's the other way. A lot of brands that have gone direct, have set up subsidiaries, have effectively tried to say, it shouldn't matter who you're working with, our product is what you want. Why is there such a battle on the other side? Is it just sort of a monetary interest where brand names want to make sure that they're who's important and not people? But maybe explain some of the history of this people versus product preference dynamic in the watch space. I think this is a really important element as to why people buy what they do. And it's not really talked about because people have such a primary focus on product. When in reality, a lot of the product is interchangeable. Like one super nice $100,000 watch could technically be replaced by another super nice $100,000 watch. So we have to take into consideration that over the past uh, 18, 24 months, there has been a very big change or turn or twist. I don't know how you want to call it on the market and in the watch industry in general. That twist being, as you were saying before, a lot of brands are looking or pushing the uh, boutique-only policy. And some historic collectors of these brands are starting to see and wonder if they have to follow that as well. So all that gives me the impression that for these really big collectors who are interested with the product, with the beauty, with the mechanism, not just who wears it and who shows it. These ones are, in a way, reconsidering what to do with this new policy because they realize that some of them are not necessarily recognized for how they supported some brands for so many years when they bought their tourbillons, their minute repeaters, their perpetual calendars, and so on and so on. And they're kind of getting a little bit frustrated in some aspect. So that's why I think many of the retailers in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world started to realize that at the end, it is not only the product you have in your store that interests your collectors, It's more the relationship that you establish with them over the years. Well, based upon what you're saying, and I agree with you almost entirely, I find it um, shocking, absolutely shocking that so many brands believe with earnest that this sort of direct-to-consumer model can work. In America, like many other places, luxury is a relationship business. And while there are people that buy brand names, it's not as important in America as it is in other places. The culture in China, for example, means that people are sort of a little bit more uh, interested in in brands and what they convey about you. In, in, In the United States, among people that can afford luxury things for a long time, it's a little bit different. So brands can do the research and figure this out, but so many brands have dismantled relationships with um, distributors or agents such as yourself, set up shop in some city in the United States, oftentimes like New York or something like that, or Miami, Miami where you are. And, or maybe you're back in New York, I forget. <laughs> you no, go back and forth. Still, still in Miami. Still the Miami, e- okay. Unfortunately or fortunately, the easiest way to travel in the entire Americas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so going back to the point, the brands have gone direct in a lot of ways. And they have these boutiques, which are no relationships, just a fancy storefront. They get to capture more margin. So when they sell watches, they get to keep more of it. But they have to invest in all this other stuff. And I just find it shocking that these risk-averse companies would rather go direct and face all these unknowns that they usually aren't very good at figuring out rather than just share with a local partner that knows how to do it. I just I continue to find that shocking because even Rolex doesn't do it. I think, you know, and I don't know if the, the term I'm going to use is the appropriate or not, but I think for some of the brands who decided recently to take that direction or some of the brands who are now considering to take that direction. It's kind of a way of saying to the other, you know what? I achieved. I don't 
need necessarily the same visibility that I was looking for before with 500 stores around the world and so on and so on. And if you look at, you know, the, the, there are two luxury brands who from the beginning more or less have gone always boutique only. It's Hermès and Louis Vuitton. They are not strong in the watch industry, I agree with you, but they are so strong in the luxury that I think many other luxury companies are like, if these two succeeded, why can't we? Before we go any further, a quick announcement, and we thought we would tell you, the listeners of the podcast, all about it first. A blog to watch is hiring. We are looking for a social media manager to look after all the Instagram, Facebook, comment section on the website, all the social media stuff that you can think of. So if you're interested, get your CV together and any relevant experience and email the boss man himself, ariel at ablogtowatch.com. We really look forward to hearing from you. So with that done, it's back to the show. Sorry, we have to get realistic about what it costs. I mean, yes. it, it goes back to this notion of like, your eyes are bigger than your mouth. They see the potential. They're like, oh, we could be Hermes. But then they're not like, well, how much does Hermes spend? How many stores do they have? Whose staff is it? I mean, I'm not saying they don't have to research. But most watch brands, even the ones that we see as big brands, are admittedly medium-sized companies. While the conglomerates themselves could be considered large, I don't think any of the watch brands themselves, maybe outside of Rolex, could be considered large companies. But they, they all want to look like they're massive multinational companies. And so it's this weird, I don't know if it's ego or it's sort of this posturing thing, but they always seem to have these ambitions that are always way larger than what they're willing to fund. Well, I mean, you always want to look for the moon and not look for what's close to you. So it's very good to dream big. But as you say, you have to dream big based on the reality that you are facing at the moment. So... Ariel, you know that, and I know that there's a lot of ego in the watch industry. So <laughs> your question of is it ego, I don't think it needs to be answered because we unfortunately know a little bit of that. But uh, it's interesting to see the evolution of the, uh, of the industry, of the positioning, of how collectors can now get access to the product and, uh, and, and how all this has now also started to create more opportunities for brands that were in the shadows so far. So speaking of brands in the shadows so far, let's actually talk about the brands that, uh, that you now represent as an agent. Um, so we have Laurent Ferrier. We have HYT again. Now HYT <laughs> went bankrupt and then got saved uh, very, <laughs> very, very, in very close succession. Then you mentioned Corum. And Graham, uh, did I miss any? No. Okay, so these are the four brands that 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 you distribute right now. And what would you say yes. these brands have in common? Like, you know, why do you choose these? I know, of course, you have an historic relationship with them. We have, you know, mo mostly higher higher price points, but a little bit of sort of some you know differences here. How how do you select these? Again, does it go back to human relationships, or is there something about these brands that you just really like? So it's a little bit of everything. And uh, also to, to make it clear, I don't represent these brands for the entire Americas, meaning North Caribbean and Latin America. Some of them is, yes, the entire region. Others are just parts, Caribbean or South America. So that's one thing. How do I select? Well, I, even though I was talking about people relation before, um, it is very important in the selection because working with people that uh, you don't really appreciate is never easy. But another very important thing is understanding the product. If you don't understand it and if you don't like it, in my opinion, it will be hard and difficult to promote and to explain properly. So if I don't see something appealing with the product, I'd rather pass and say, I'm sorry, I, I won't be able to do the job that you want me to or that you deserve. And any type of products that you just don't like? Because, again, the, the watches are, you know, some of these things are very avant-garde. You know, let's, let's be honest. So what is it that you like and not like in a watch? I mean, you come from a background with cars. You understand there's some technical features that are cool, some you don't care about. Like, what attracts you to the stories and the brand? So what I know I can't do nowadays is uh, volume brands. I'm not equipped for that. I've never done it. So that I know, 
I will not be able to do a good job because it's a completely different thing than, as you were selling before, saying before, presenting and representing high-end brands. What do I like in watches? It's, it's difficult to say because I think every brand and most of every product do have something interesting. Me personally, I'm a lover of world timer and GMT functions. So this is always something that talks to me more than a moon phase, for instance. Right, right. Like if I can't wear the watch, I won't like it. So I, I will sell what I like and what I uh, can wear. Um, but also the... The, the design and the taste have changed, you know, in the past uh, 10 years. I mean, look at HYT 10 years ago when it came up. It was perfectly in the trend. Big watches, very visible, very eye-catching and everything. Nowadays, is that the trend anymore? No, the trend is more the Laurent Ferrier style, more classic. Wait, you represent less... Graham, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Think, speaking of large watches, yes. HYT large watches, a lot of Corum's large watches. So you, so what is it like, 10, 10 or 15% of the watches you move are of the smaller ones? <laughs> no, 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 no. On these brands, no. But that's why I go back to what I was saying before, which is depending on the brand, I don't necessarily carry the same territory. In the case of Graham, for instance, I'm doing it in Mexico. And Mexico is a market that like this type of watches. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Uh, in the case of Corum, for instance, I'm involved in the Caribbean market. And Corum is a nautical watch. So even though it's big, when you dive, when you're at the beach, when you want something sporty, you want something cool and yeah, different. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a boat and beach watch. Exactly, exactly. So that's also why going back to the territory, this has a lot of impact as well on potential sales. Because... Right now, uh, the American market is more looking at a, a classical and traditional product. But 10, 15 years ago, they were not. They were more looking at a big watch, a sporty watch, and so on and so on. So everything works with trend. You know, I think the trend right now is more classic, more traditional. In five years, what do we know? Maybe it'll be the Apple Watch. Maybe it'll be just digital. Maybe it'll be, I don't know. The, yeah, and, and I think it's important to be open-minded. And you come with a sort of relaxed perspective, you know, if I'm sort of comparing you to some of your colleagues. Like, you you have confidence that people will want nice watches because they have consistently for a long time. You recognize that tastes and preferences change, but there's always going to be these people out there that like to buy nice watches and people out there that like to, that like to sell nice watches. And as long as that remains true, you'll always have something to do. Would you agree with that? Of course, of course. And, and thank God everybody has different tastes in the world. So there is things for everybody. You know... Uh, so it's not all I, just Rolex. No. Nah, <laughs> thank, thank God for the ones who can't get it. <laughs> it's not just that. But uh, I mean, when, you, when I speak with uh, some of our clients, some of our retail partners, they always say, you know, I can't tell you what's the best watch. The best watch is the one that finally finds somebody to love and, uh, and, and, and like and enjoy. And it's true. You can't say, oh, this is bad and this is good. No. Who can decide to judge like that? Because at the end, it's, it's very personal. I mean, if you look at art, I may like Picasso, but you may hate it and prefer Monet, for instance, you know, so it's uh, it's all these are very personal, te personal taste that no one can really uh, judge or discuss. At the end, it's you, the wearer, who knows what you like and what you enjoy. Now, if you look at the average of the population, yes, you can start to make trends and, and fine tunes in order to try to cater more to them. But when you go individual to individual, which is what we're trying to do nowadays with Laurent Ferrier, given the small production, here it's a completely different business. That's why Graham and Corm is a completely different business because it's a more mass, a massive production compared to Laurent Ferrier, even though it's right. still uh, less than five, less than five thousand units per year for for each of the brands. So it's nothing compared to others, but it's a complete different way of working it as well. So that's what is interesting to 
when I switch from one brand to the other, it's first, it's different products that are not really competing with each other, even though prices may be similar, but they have different background. And also because I'm trying to always find the right partner who will understand and uh, promote it the best way possible. I always try to, you know, give the most chance possible to the product rather than just a nice environment where we will look good in it, but we nobody will look at our product. No, I, I hear you. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change topic really quick for a second to something I've been thinking about. And you reminded me about this and what you were saying about how tastes and things change, but it's really a very personal thing. And it's true. And when you look at an ideal scenario in somebody buying a watch, they buy a watch that, that he or she likes and wants to wear and feels represents themselves. This is sort of the ideal scenario and you want to provide them with as much choice as possible. Now, I'm trying to compare the modern era to the past. I'm like, okay, what was, what was different about it? When I realized is that in the past, nobody was really able to know how popular or niche their their watch is. And so you're, you're, you're making a decision by going to some stores, maybe looking at some magazines or whatever, and you, you make a personal decision, but you don't really know how popular Rolex is. You don't really know how niche some of these small brands are. You're just making a decision based upon what you like and what you can learn about the brand and pricing and things like that. Today, everybody feels like they have market research available for them, whether it's just casually browsing Instagram to reading top 10 lists or whatever. Doesn't matter if these sources are accurate or really representative of popularity. Everyone feels that an additional thing to consider when buying a product like this is how popular is it? What is the resale? How many other people recognize it? It's sort of a new thing that people get to consider. And a lot of that information is flawed. You know, maybe Instagram would make you believe that Rolex is way more popular than it is, which is a different issue. But consumers today have this like new part of the equation, which is how popular in the world is my product. And this is a new variable that up until, you know, about the last 10 or 15 years wasn't really available. And that's, you know, in, in, a, in a very interesting sense, highly changed the, the dynamic, both in how watches are sold and bought. Do you ever think about that? No, of course, all the time. And, you know, this is sometimes something that really makes me sad a little bit because of the evolution of the market, which is, Unfortunately, more than 50% of the watches sold nowadays are not sold because of what is the product or what are the characteristics, but just by what status is it going to give you. And it's sad because when you see these watchmakers working all day behind their bench with their loop, trying to make their product the nicest possible, the most attractive, the most desirable, and at the end are not really recognized for the value and the amount of work that they put in it. That's that's the sad part of it. You know, that nowadays there are a lot of products that are available on the market and people just don't look at it because these products are not promoted like they are good products. Same, exactly what you were saying before about maybe Rolex being promoted at the best. And I think it's sad for all that human factor behind it who is not, uh, um, how can I say that, who is not uh, recognized for what it should be. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I feel that when you go into maybe like a, a watch store that has like really passionate salespeople that like products, or you go to an event with other collectors, it really changes the way you perceive the brand if you have, until that point, basically been a solo collector or all you've engaged with is marketing and you know internet commerce and things like that. Once you speak to other people and you see how they actually respond to watches and talk about them, I think it sort of broadens your horizons and opens your mind a little bit, which, which goes back to the topic of education. The more educated a market market is, the more cultured they are on that topic, and the more cultured they are, the more broad their uh, their decisions and opinions and tastes are. And in watches, it is true that much of America is quite uncultured and, in the sense, uneducated when it comes to watches. What what would be some of the solutions? Of course, you know, we at Ablaw to Watch do what we can do and have made uh, many new watch lovers and continue to do so where there haven't been any. But matters could be accelerated, you know. More funding, for example, would allow watch media to reach more people. What what can brands do to educate more people in this in, in, in your markets 
um, in, in a more effective way, in your opinion? So, you know, I, I remember a few years ago, and uh, you and I probably had that discussion as well, when uh, smartwatches came up. Everybody, um, a lot of people were like, oh, it's going to be the end of the watch industry and we're all going to say bye to selling our beautiful perpetual calendars and tourbillons and whatever. After these years, I don't think he had an impact on that. Why? First of all, because, and I see that with my kids, they wear their Apple Watch. I bought them in the past other watches. They did not. But now that they have the Apple Watch, they are getting used to have something on their wrist. And I know in few years when they will be older, they will be, it will be easier for them to understand what I was saying before about all that handwork in the watch that they're going to wear. So I think in terms of education, something that is very important, but not in the U.S., but everywhere in the world, because all the world is the same in a way, is really to be able to make collectors understand that the timepiece they are buying is the result of a amazing amount of work, you know? And most of the time in the recent years, this has been forgotten. The main reason nowadays in buying watches is, am I going to resell it for what price? And it shouldn't be that. It, it should be an enjoyment. It should be a pleasure to first buy it, research it, look at the ones you want. I mean, look when you buy your cars. You usually don't go just in the dealership and point your finger to the first one you see. No, you research what you want, what you need, your consumption, your your size for the boot, and so on and so on. With the watches, it should be the same. And unfortunately, right now, it's not. So how can we do to change that? I think we have to, yes, continue to insist on the fact that these are unique products. These are pieces that, even though they look alike, are not alike because the watchmaker is not the same every day. So his work is not the same every day. You make me think about something very interesting on this point. And it has to do uh, with what you said about watches taking a lot of work to make. And what I realized is that a lot of people who like watches and admire watches have some background in doing something that required a lot of work. Maybe they built a business that took a lot of time. Maybe they actually built something that took a lot of time, invested in education, uh, other hobbies. But they know what it's like to put a lot of work into something and then see results. And because of that, I think they can sort of translate that mentality into an appreciation of timepieces and therefore they like watches. It's sort of a good hobby because like you said, you have to learn about watches. Then you have to learn about, you know, the watches that interest you. And then you have to learn about which ones you actually want to wear. And these are layers of experience and education, which if you're not used to doing that in other parts of your life, probably seem very, very tedious. No, of course, because, you know, it is like that. And uh, and that's why, going back to what you were saying before, education, uh, that's the most important. And, and we've seen that over the past um, 15 years, uh, everybody around the world became more savvy on watchers, not necessarily with the right information uh, to make them see and understand the difference between what we call the big names today is the Rolex, the Pateks, the Audemars Piguet, some of the Richemont brands and so on, but more to, to make them understand that, okay, there is big watchmaking companies producing massive units. There are medium, there are unique ones. There are, you know, a, a épicerie fine, as we would say in French, which is really quality artisan work, uh, producing maybe just three watches per year, but doing it manually and so on and so on. So that all that concept has, uh, has disappeared because unfortunately, in some cases, uh, the watches became a commodity and not anymore a product where you appreciate the beauty of the work. Well, let, let's let's... Let's talk about that for a second because you're right. Enthusiasts and aficionados like you and me can all day long talk about how you really need to be cultured to appreciate this and we need variety and this ultimate you know, um, you know, pursuit of perfection. But the reality is, is that commodity is what makes this industry 
impossible. Car industry is a perfect example. If there wasn't a volume side to the car industry, <laughs> you wouldn't have any enthusiast cars. You wouldn't really have that much luxury cars. Like It'd be a very weird industry without the volume side. And so the watch industry, as much as collectors like to <laughs> make fun of the volume side, I think there needs to be more celebration of it. What I'm hoping, going back to what you said about smartwatches, is that, and again, this sounds twisted, but the smartwatch makers might actually get into owning some of the traditional brands because they specifically know if you've been wearing a smartwatch long enough and you and you have a certain level of education, culture, and of course, disposable income, there's a good chance you might want this other thing on your wrist. Wouldn't that be crazy if, you know, 20 years from now, you know, you had like Samsungs and Apples of the world owning some of the old watch names? I mean, it would be a, a, I don't know if a nice dream, but it's a, it's a fun dream. Will that happen? I don't know. But there is a trend like that because if you look now in the new, uh, I don't know how you call that software in these watches, they, you can now have a tourbillon on it. You can have a perpetual calendar. You can have a world timer. You can have many different display type that normally you only find in uh, in mechanical watches so there is obviously a kind of uh, the two world joining together imagine this just imagine this there's a, the smart watches rule rule the market when it comes to wearables okay they sort of do now but just we're going to the future and it becomes like the phone market everyone's product more or less does the same things they have their own style here and there but when it comes down to it, it's like just small differences that make people buy A or B or C. So owning the intellectual property rights of an old name and watchmaking that has a design ethos behind it, let's say Rolex, okay? You say, hey, we make wearables for the wrist and we need to have a competitive advantage and we decided we want to be high-end and to look nicer than the other people's things. Who Who's good at that? We can either try to invent that or we can literally just borrow someone else's history, which happens all the time in watchmaking. So I don't think it's actually inconceivable from a business perspective to see in the future successful smart watchmakers wanting to distinguish themselves by combining today's technology and the look and feel of some of these you know, old world um, you know, luxury products. I agree with you. There's a, it's completely not, imp- I mean, it's very possible that it happens. But I think we have to look at the fact that these uh, digital watchmakers uh, made it only because they thought that they needed to have a new support for their technology. They already had the phone, they already had the computer, they already had the tablets. What else? The watch, a new screen on you. So I don't think their interest is really watchmaking, unfortunately. (laughs) <laughs> let's be let's be clear uh, i think it's uh, it's just you know um, having your your clientele uh, captive the same way that these uh, brands now are trying to go boutique only to have their clientele captive as well and making sure Maybe. that nobody else go anywhere but let's look at cars let's look at cars if you take away the body of a car the underpinning has a lot of technical differences from the neighbors, but they perform identically a lot of instances. It's the layer above the the chassis, if you will, that makes people buy it or not buy it. It's a visual thing. It's a style. So if you have a competitive marketplace of a couple dozen smart watch makers, assuming it becomes a few dozen, if it's two or three, I guess that's not enough, but it's a few dozen, I think you could do it. What's to say that their competitive advantage isn't going to be what's on the outside and, you know, borrowing it from a legendary brand. I'm just saying, like, the world of Cartier could live on in smartwatch form. Like, all of this could happen. You know, no, of course, and Cartier can do it like uh, Tiger did it or Hublot did it, saying, you know what, why we let that business go? And, and they did it, and they are, I believe, successful because there is demand on this product. But going back to the uh, comparison you were saying, you were doing with the car industry, you know, the car industry is so close to the watch industry. I mean, you and I know what's in a what's in a watch engine, meaning it's not necessarily always a manufacturer movement. Sometimes yeah, it's yeah. movement that are produced by a company but used by different brands in the same technical characteristic, but not the same finishes and so on and so on. It's borrowed stuff. It's not bad. It's just shared. 
Well, the car industry is the same. Yeah, of course. The engine you might find in the BMW is probably the same original engine you'll find in the Audi or in the Mercedes. I mean, this is not the names, of course, that are working together, but it's it's like that because these developments are so expensive that they have to, you know, work together in order to make it happen. Yeah, so that's very why few companies actually make their own engines from scratch. Yes, very few. Uh, exactly. So that's why the 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 relation between cars and watches have always existed for so many years. And it's funny to see how the luxury sporty car industry has evolved so much in the last 20 years. Maybe we are now seeing that uh, same evolution with the watch industry now. Maybe, maybe. Okay, I'll stop being a futurist for a moment. I just thought we could take that little interesting tangent because you know, this is why I love having these discussions. Like, it's not really about like a specific Laurent Ferrier watch. If people out there are curious, by all means, go check out Laurent Ferrier. Go check out Graham and, and Corum and HYT. Um, HYT is going to be relaunching um, in, in, well, I guess it was supposed to be this month. That's what Davide said when I saw him in, in November. Yeah, so if you have uh, two minutes, uh, HYT is a, is a very interesting story. Sad last year, going back to good now. When I started, it was in 2012 when they first launched, and I thought it was a, a very interesting innovation, or at least a true watch innovation in the past 60, 50 years. Like liquid a, time displays, they called themselves the hydro mechanical horologists, a lot of fun marketing, a lot of Vincent Perriard stuff. Um, exactly. And, uh, and that cool, was cool. really, Very cool. yeah, that was really a breakthrough in the watchmaking. You know, nobody had done that before except water clocks, but in much bigger form, nothing on your wrist. So when it first came out, I was always in love with it and I thought it was great. Unfortunately, ma bad management, probably mismanagement brought it to what happened in, at the end of 2020, early 2021. But the good part is that, yes, collectors or investors found that having that disappearing would be sad for the industry. So they decided to uh, put together funds and be able to relaunch it. And the new products that are coming this year are very, very, very interesting and different from what has been done in the past 10 years. So hopefully... We can start to present them soon because uh, everybody yeah. will be very surprised by the new look of it. And I've seen a little bit of the new stuff already. Um, Davide did show me a couple of sneak peeks. I haven't seen everything, but he seems to be excited about it. Now, he is a completely new face to the brand. Um, he's definitely doesn't have the reputation for doing a lot of futuristic stuff, which HYT definitely is. Um, what's it been like working with him and how do you think he's different from who was running HYT uh, before? So a lot of creativity, that's for sure. Uh, always thinking uh, probably three designs ahead than where you already at. So that's good. Uh, why is it going to be different? I can't tell you right now because I'm waiting for it to start. But we all know that sometimes when it's not working, bringing new blood can help to make it good. Uh, in that case, why am I go coming to do it again? I don't know because I'm not really new blood for them. But I think here what was interesting uh, was more the experience that I could give them on how was the market in the region. Because um, I installed that market, most of it, uh, since 2012. And even though it's a new management now and products are a little bit different, at the end, the people who really can understand it and promote it the best way are the ones that used to carry it before. So once Absolutely. again, we go back to that human relation. That's what you need to be able to, you know, uh, make them say, you know what, I still love it, even though it broke my heart a year ago. Let's try to do it again because I agree with you. It's interesting. So again, we go back to that human factor. Unfortunately, right. it's always that in the equation. 
<laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, but it is a very interesting <laughs> product. Um, and I do, I do, of course, wish the entire team very well. I'm excited to see more of it. And what I think about the situation, you know, you were talking about some of the business things and mismanagement. I, I have a slightly different perspective on it. What I think, and again, I'd love to hear your thoughts, is this is what happened, and this happens a lot. There's a financier who wants performance within a certain amount of time, but unfortunately, unreasonably so. Watch brands take a longer period of time to get popular. Once they do, they have a lot of stickiness. But initial popularity and gaining momentum with the market is easy. You can just sell because it's new. But then getting like sort of this long-term effect where you're actually a stable part of the industry and people have ongoing demand for you is very challenging and can take a decade, sometimes two decades, sometimes more. So what ends up happening is that more money needs to be pumped into keeping the brand going for a longer period of time um, than the sort of financier thinks is is necessary, despite the fact that that's just what it takes. Is that what's going on a lot? I don't know because I can't uh, speak about these as I'm not part of the the main uh, H quarter okay. uh, headquarters, so I'm not in the secret of God, as we would say. But uh, yes, at some point, some investor want to get back their funds. Is that the reason why HYT stopped? I don't think so. I think, I really think it was a man. In my opinion, it was too much to solve and um, not necessarily asking the right questions at the right moment. That's how maybe I would prefer to put it. Okay, okay. All I'm saying is there's a trend. And yes. we've seen this with other brands. And it's, oh, you went out of business. What happened? Well, our financier decided to stop paying. Well, why would that happen? You know what I mean? Like, and there's always emotional things. Our financier got scared. All of it sounds like the financier is expecting a return doesn't see the potential of return, whereas I don't know what what bill of goods they're being sold because traditionally speaking, a watch brand takes a while to become popular. Um, even brand you know companies like Richemont have been utterly humbled <laughs> in how long it takes to to create momentum in terms of sales with a lot of the brands that they have. So these financiers, I don't know if they're not doing their homework or they're just being lied to because whatever it is, they're seemingly getting angry for reasons beyond the control of the managers, at least in many instances. I mean, as you say, they are probably sold a picture that uh, doesn't turn into reality. Okay, so it's just as simple as that. Caveat emptor, you know, you know what you're buying or investing in. A, a good advice for people buying watches. Now, we, we only have a few more minutes, and I want to talk about future outlooks. You know probably a little bit more than others what the trend is with, not, not necessarily products, but mostly like strategy. The U.S. is the biggest market for watch brands and Everyone seems to be tired of pandemic-related stalling and, and stopping and not really moving forward. Everybody wants to grow and do and be active again. So what is it going to look like in the American market over the next few years? What are we going to see from some of the bigger brands, you think? Because I know you talk to people and from your brands. What are some changes? What are some things that consumers can look forward to? And, and how are these strategies going to uh, be adaptive to pandemic-related considerations, if you will? So I don't want to be pessimistic, but unfortunately, I think this year is going to be still a little bit difficult. We've seen uh, supply problems uh, on everything in our daily life. And of course, these supply problems also affect you know, the watch industry. We've experienced in the case of uh, Laurent Ferrier or Corum that, yes, uh, getting, for instance, some specific leather goods, uh, leather for, for straps was very difficult to get. So I don't think the um, amount of deliveries are necessarily going to improve right away if that was mm. part of the question. I think 2022 is still going to be Depends on that because until we go back to, you know, full capacity in every uh, type of production, not just watches, but food, uh, leather, and so on and so on, it, it will affect also us. So now, what about more long-term? So supply no. chain is still going to be an issue, but long-term, and what about with retailers? I have the impression that brands with the pandemic realized, you know what, Overproducing is no longer interesting. 
So I think some brands are starting to decide I'm not going to produce more than what I'm doing now. And people are going to have to, yes, wait, fight, whatever it is. So That'll last for like four years, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But you're right. It may change with the next CEO. That's true. But um, what I would uh, recommend people is really do your homework, Choose what you like, what you enjoy. Don't choose it because you are being told by one of your friends, this is the best thing. Make your own decision. Research on your own. Go speak with your local retailer. They are here to help you, to guide you, to try to give you the, the right information, even though they don't carry the brand. If they are really passionate, they will know about it, even if they don't represent it. Because I think it's always important to know who you are facing, you know. Uh, you should know the plus and minus of your product as well as the plus and minus of your competitors. Not to be mad or, or to demolish them, on the contrary, but to use that to boost and, and uh, promote your ones. So I think patience is probably going to be a strong word for the next two, three years. Very good advice. Very good advice. So Charles Marin is uh, the founder of La Reserve Agencies. And if you are in North America, uh, the Caribbean, um, or parts of uh, South and Central America, and you're interested in Graham, Corum, HYT, or Laurent Ferrier watches, he might be the person responsible for, um, for that watch being in your market. So Charles, thank you so much for being on this episode of Superlative. Ariel, thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. And uh, once again, Happy New Year to everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.